Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Solvable. I'm Jacob Weisberg. I do think we'll look back in 10 years or 20 years at this era of the internet and be like, it's so crazy and kind of cute that we thought that you could connect all of human society through 180 or 230 character snippets of text. In the early 2000s, Eli Pariser was running moveon.org and thinking about how to reach people through the internet. It was during that time that Pariser realized something important. The algorithms being used by companies like Facebook were standing between his work and the wider audience he was trying to reach. Pariser introduced the world to the idea of filter bubbles and warned that they could be isolating us from ideas and perspectives we might not already agree with. It now seems that many of the algorithms used by social media companies, and not just Facebook, have contributed to the political polarization we're experiencing today. We saw a kind of you know, worst imaginable case scenario on January 6th. Yeah. How much of the blame for that do you think goes to the social platforms? The social part of it allowed people both to coordinate and find each other and then to create this kind of shared reality. People showed up not totally knowing if they were playing a role and they were cosplaying or if they were actually ready for battle. And that's a very volatile situation. These days, Pariser is working with Professor Talia Stroud from the University of Texas on a project called Civic Signals. They're looking at the social cues that are rewarded or punished across social media and how online platforms might elevate different signals to design healthier digital spaces for all of us. When you think about all of the civic spaces in a community, there are very few that are like, here's the place where you go when you want to walk up to strangers and tell them what you really think about the most intense political beliefs that you have. 
Instead, we've got basketball courts and tennis courts, which are really about like coexisting across lines of difference. Pariser believes that social media can be redesigned to support social cohesion. My solvable is creating digital spaces that weave a stronger social fabric that help us come together as a community, as a society. Eli, this uh, interview is going to begin unusually with an apology from me to you. I don't know <laughs> how well you even remember this, but about a decade ago, when your book, The Filter Bubble, came out, we did a public debate, one of those staged debates. And you argued that you were right. And I argued that you were wrong about filter bubbles. And uh, I realized uh, some years ago that, in fact, you were completely right and I was completely wrong. I appreciate that. I Stopped clocks and all of that. It's nice to be right once in a while. We we saw a kind of you know worst imaginable case scenario on January six. Yeah, um, with an incident, ins- violent insurrection at, at the Capitol. How much of the blame for that do you think goes to the social platforms? I mean, it's it's only been a short time, but what have we learned about that event in relation to the kind of social media polarization that you've been focused on? I'm not a person who would say 100%. There are other forces um, at work that are driving the kind of autocratic moment that we were up against and that are driving violent extremism in the United States. But I think the social part of it allowed people both to coordinate and find each other and then to create this kind of shared reality, which was one part fantasy and one part real, right? Like people showed up not totally knowing if they were playing a role and they were cosplaying, right? Or or if they were actually ready for battle. Yeah. I mean, let's dig into that a little bit because there, you know, there are a bunch of things that are um, interesting and super alarming about them. <laughs> I mean, one, one of them is this, you know, this point you make about extremists having a way to get together. But the other aspect of it, you were kind of, I think, alluding to QAnon and the, you know, and the nature of it. It's not a classic conspiracy theory that comes out of politics. It is more like, a, you know, some kind of, you know, science fiction narrative that has elements of fantasy and game. Right. And you know, part of the fun of it is that you get to co-create that reality, right? It's, it's not just that you're being handed this narrative. It's that you get to find the clues and you get to piece together the pieces um, along with a lot of other people. You know, it's like if you've ever watched a film where a bunch of investigative journalists like discover the big dark secret at the center of a country or whatever. It's actually that same feeling that these conspiracy theories draw on, which is like we're we're a team together, you know, kind of pulling the curtain back and showing the world what what's happening. Yeah, I'm thinking about how to reform social media, which is something you you've been thinking about a long time. One of the you know key problems is is how you prevent that. I mean, we'll get into in a minute, you know, some of your ideas about fostering, you know, more positive democratic ideas, small d democratic ideas in a minute. But at the very least, you want to stop <laughs> violent extremists from organizing activity. How do you do that? It starts with what drives people toward violent extremism, right? A lot of that is a sense of purposelessness and powerlessness and a lack of other forums in which to feel like you have some agency. And so 
you have to address things on that level. But I also think, you know, the platforms that we have are so ill-equipped still to really address these problems. And and I think there's a reason that empires historically have have fallen. Um, and Uh-oh. it's that, <laughs> you know, it, well, well, which is that um, having a huge human system, a civilization dependent on the decisions of one individual is an inherently fragile way to organize uh, social functions. And that's essentially what we have in Facebook and Twitter both. Yeah. Well, there's the algorithm problem that they are constantly trying to maximize for amount of use, length of use, depth of use. Um, but the, the other thing I, I keep harping on is their seeming inability for them to have real standards and, and hold to them. Um in the end, these companies respond to public pressure. And when the public pressure is great enough, they eventually do something about it. And, you know, with the banning of Donald Trump, you could argue that he violated their standards. But realistically, if he violated their standards in January, he violated them, you know, since he's been on the platform. Yeah. Similarly, there are other cases, you know, other dictators around the world who are, you know, who who make more extreme and violent threats than Donald Trump and aren't going to be kicked off anytime soon because Facebook isn't being pressured about it. Now, Facebook does seem to be taking some steps in the directions of standards. It set up this Supreme Court, <laughs> um, an idea I think that my colleague uh, Noah Feldman originally originated. Yeah. And they're, they're now ruling on this, w- whether Donald Trump stays permanently banned. But what do you think about the capacity of social media platforms to do the right thing? I mean, are they capable of it? To me, you know, all of that points toward just the fragility of this model. It's a bad way to organize things now. It's a bad way even if you give him, even if he's a very wise person. And it's especially, you know, it gets almost comically problematic when you imagine, you know, God forbid, uh, you know, he gets hit hit by a bus um, and you have all of a sudden the estate of Mark Zuckerberg making these decisions. Nothing against Priscilla Chan, but like you get into this very weird world of, you know, some of the most important decisions about speech, about how we are related, are are in this the hands of this you know very small group of people who may not have any direct expertise. And even with a Supreme Court, you know, what does it totally mean to have a Supreme Court but not a legislature or an elected executive? <laughs> you know, th- those those things generally go together for a reason. Well, I mean, I guess you could argue in the analogy that the you know Mark Zuckerberg is the executive, and the Supreme Court is deciding whether his decisions are uh, compatible with the Constitution, i.e., the rules that are set in place, and they do have, it, it seems, the ability to overrule him. So if they decide that he that that Trump wasn't fairly banned, they can unban him, and Mark Zuckerberg has said he'll be bound by that. He's said that, but he isn't actually. They're not able to enforce that over his. If he said no, there's no recourse. There's no like uh, sergeant at arms of Facebook who's going to come and push the button to to put Trump back on. So what else would work or what would work better in terms of governance for these social media companies? I mean, if they have a Supreme Court, as you say, do they need do they need other branches of government? How should they be structured to be more accountable? That question of governance is really important. And I'm not suggesting that every Every company, every platform needs to have a kind of democratically elected um, board. But I do think in the long run, 
these kinds of spaces work best when they are accountable to the communities that they serve. And part of what is missing right now is any kind of feedback loop that requires them to do that. Um, In some ways, we in the United States have it the best because at least a lot of the folks who work at these companies live here. But if you talk to folks in other parts of the world, yeah, there's just very little resources or interest in figuring out how do we make uh, a platform like that serve uh, folks in, in South America or in Malaysia. And so really thinking about models where there is some sense of collective ownership, collective governance is is a piece of the puzzle. And one of the things that my uh, partner in this effort, Talia Stroud, and I have been thinking about is what lessons we can take from physical public spaces that might inform digital ones. So talk to me about some of the public infrastructure things that could create a positive impact, positive influence here. Sure, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think it's useful, again, to start with, well, what what works in physical space and and why? And hmm. I've been very captivated by work that Eric Kleinenberg and other sociologists have done showing, you know, for example, the the value of having parks in a neighborhood. It's not just about health or about having a nice place to go with some some green trees. It's about um, those are the places where people form a sense of familiarity with each other, where they encounter other people in the community who they otherwise might not seek out and are like, it's okay, I can I can deal. Um, and ultimately where they form a sense of collective identity where you know they have this shared um, reference point. You know, if you were to operate a park like a business, some of those functions would fall away. And so to me, you know, part of this is about how do we build institutions that serve those functions in digital life that are not going to be met by, you know, uh, companies looking to maximize their their profits. Yeah, but even with parks, it's a it's a really good example. Um, there are parks that really work yeah. from the point of view of creating that kind of set, and ones that really don't. You know, the ones that don't are you know people feel they're dangerous or they're dirty or they're you know there's crime taking place. Yeah. Um, and the ones that do, I mean, they're even you know people who study this kind of thing point to all sorts of really subtle design decisions. I remember when they were um, opening Bryant Park in New York, they made a big thing out of the chairs not being anchored down. Mm-hmm. And so people show up in the park and they can adjust the chair. And someone would, before sitting in the chair, adjust it, you know, even like, you know, a few inches. But somehow that, you know, gives them a sense of kind of ownership of the space. Yeah. You know, never would have occurred to me. But what are the social media equivalents of of those, that kind of thinking about, about public spaces? Well, so you're referring, I think, to... Um there's a wonderful book that I've spent a lot of time kind of thinking about, The Public Life of Small Urban Spaces, which was written by William White in the 70s. Mm. Um, and he actually, you know, he was this great character who like ran around New York with a with a video camera or a film film camera filming, you know, uh, Bryant Park for like, you know, a day and trying to figure out like, when are people here? Why are they here? What are they doing? Um, and he noticed this thing about the chairs and the and and how it offered people this sense of dignity that they could like establish their relationship to each other. Thank you, by the way. Excellent giving me that the real <laughs> reference of what I was passing on. It's, well, it's funny because I've 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 used that example literally um, 
because it, it is this small design decision that has these big um, consequences. One of the things that White and Jane Jacobs and a bunch of the other folks who have really thought about um, public space note is, so part of it is about the design. And I think there are ways to think about how you uh, offer people that sense of of dignity and that sense of another thing that he writes about, um, Bryant Park, that Bryant Park has varying degrees of publicness. Mm. So this will mean more to people who have spent a lot of time in it uh, in New York. But there's areas where you're in public, but you're really pretty private. You're sitting at a chess table. You're not kind of making a big scene of yourself. And then if you walk out into the middle of the field, um, everyone can see you and you can do your big spectacular thing. And so um, it offers people this way to very intuitively modulate, like how much do I want to be seen? How much do I want to be watching others? And social media, you know, it's very unintuitive and it's sort of a binary, right? Like I can be seen potentially by everyone in, on the internet or no one, but having that sense of kind of intuitive modulation isn't isn't part of the picture. The other thing that folks like White and, and Jane Jacobs have pointed to is like part of this is about design and part of it's about people and programming. When you look at spaces that are flourishing, there are a bunch of people who kind of take some ownership or some stewardship of those spaces. There are activities that happen there that draw people in. It's not just like a blank canvas. And this for me was one of the big kind of aha moments in this in this work that I've been doing right now, because it's such a contrast to the kind of Twitter notion of like, let's build the minimal communications platform and see, you know, what emerges from that. This is really saying like, no, you've got to be really conscientious. And this is what, what people observe about parks that are really working and especially that are working to be kind of inclusive and equitable. You're thinking very actively about like what's going to get which communities out and how do we build the right kinds of activities and spaces that are going to serve those communities. And ultimately, a lot of the time it comes down to co-design. So how are we actually working with the people in this community together to come up with what we want this space to be? You know, that to me um, is pretty far from uh, what it feels like to be on Facebook or start a Facebook group. Yeah. When I think about sort of pro-social behavior on digital media, mm -hmm. the thing that springs first to mind is Wikipedia, um, which is a company that's it's a not-for-profit. Yeah. It has a very large number of very dedicated volunteers. Um, you know, I'm sure there are all sorts of, there's all sorts of, Partisanship and stuff, yeah. but there are also people who are very committed to weeding it out. And uh, often when you go to Wikipedia, you find exactly what you're looking for, gives you the references. And sometimes you find things that are like incredibly good. And, you know, volunteers have done this um, out of a sense of, you know, they enjoy doing it, but it's it's for public good. How do you cultivate that? Well, if you agree with me about Wikipedia, yeah. are there other examples and how do we spread that ethic? I totally agree uh, about the the promise of Wikipedia, and I think it's also worth really noting again that you know Wikipedia is so amazing in so many ways, but even now um, the ratio of male to female editors is like two to one, uh -huh. and that's after a lot of hard work by the outgoing CEO Catherine Marr to like pull in more female editors, and it had real consequences in terms of what stories you know what what articles got put on Wikipedia um, because you would have these kind of like, you know, 
90-page treatises on some manga <laughs> character that was of interest to like d- dudes who were nerds and you know not the most basic information about Mary Curie or whoever. So um, yeah. the point there is, I think the fallacy was, um, we'll just let everyone, anyone edit without a whole lot of structure and we'll find our community. And that kind of worked, but it kind of didn't. And so I guess the point is, um, until they really started thinking seriously about how do we get women editors, how do we get editors from the global south, um, there were these big gaps in what that product was. And so to me, it's sort of just saying social problems are a bigger part of the challenge than the technology problems. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing 
This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Where do you see social media working? I mean, what are the positive examples to build on in your mind? What's interesting is when you get away from the need to show a kind of like exponential up into the right growth curve, there are lots of wonderful examples of communities that are really functioning. One that I like to think about is um, a platform in Vermont called Front Porch Forum, which is uh, it's basically like a heavily moderated daily newsletter for your geographic area. And anyone can post, you have to prove that you live there. But if you write a nasty note or whatever, it's sent back to you with a nice little like, hey, Eli, it sounds like you're having a moment. Can you rewrite this? And because you can only post once a day, like it's really hard to maintain a flame war for like 17 days running. It's possible, but you really got to be into it. You know, I think that's a really interesting example of like if you increase moderation and you don't focus on engagement over, you know, minutes and seconds, but you're thinking about long term, you can actually create these really different kinds of conversations. And in Vermont, um, even as Facebook use has gone up, two thirds of Vermont households are on Front Porch Forum. So again, it's like if you were just trying to maximize engagement, it wouldn't be the most effective way. Like flame wars are great for engagement, but they're not actually very good for substantive community conversation. I mean, two thirds of households, that sounds incredible. You know, is that um, just because things are like that in Vermont and they're very civic minded (laughs) and people get along with each other? I mean, if you try to do that in Florida or Arizona, you know, do you think the same thing can work? Yeah, I mean, I think both, I really feel like, it wouldn't be the exact same thing. And I think this is one of the challenges that we have with our tech environment right now. It's just, I really think there is no one algorithm that is going to work for 3 billion humans. It seems like that's just a very hard task from from the start. So figuring out how you build some of the local character and local community into the spaces that we're all relating in actually seems really important. But that said, I think, you know, making healthy, flourishing communities is both really difficult and not that difficult. And the part that is not that difficult is you just need people who are willing to spend a lot of effort making it good and doing the hard work of like setting up the events, managing different groups of people that may be antagonistic to each other, building a sense of community identity, And I feel like in the physical world, there are people who have those jobs. They're like the park, you know, activities coordinator or the librarian or the social worker. They like 
do those functions, um, we rely on you know kind of volunteer moderators who have other jobs to do that in digital life. And so I think that's the part that's like, it's not that hard. It's just a lot of work and it's expensive. And if you're trying to create something that has a great growth curve, it's the first thing that you take out of the balance sheet. But there's a gap between people's expressed preferences and their revealed preferences. Mm -hmm. When you ask people, they often say they want to hear a big range of viewpoints. They want to be informed citizens. They want to participate in a civil constructive dialogue. And yeah, they'd like to be on a social media platform that does that. But in fact, when, I mean, Vermont Front Porch sounds like it's an exception, um, but a lot of the attempts I've seen to try to create those more socially constructive forums um, flounder because people don't find them as enjoyable. You know, when it comes down to it, that's yeah. that, that's spinach and there's there's candy over at Twitter. Right. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who, who wants to take candy away from anyone, but uh, (laughs) I really think it's about actually increasing the diversity of the options that we have for different ways of relating to each other. Those two pieces can coexist just like, you know, you have parks and then you have amusement parks or whatever. Do you see positive things happening anywhere in commercial social media? Are there, I mean, these platforms all have a different personality. Yeah. And some of them at least seem much less virulent. But if the, you know, the kind of thing you admire on Vermont Front Porch, yeah. do you see like the indications of that breaking out anywhere in the commercial world? Yeah. I mean, I think there are pieces um, all over the place. Um, Tally and I did some. So so basically part of our work was trying to identify the 14 kind of qualities of uh, healthy digital public spaces, what we're calling kind of the signals. And we did this uh, survey where we asked people about different platforms and how they felt the platforms were doing on those signals. Reddit got pretty high marks on a number of these kind of community functions from its users relative to a Facebook or a Twitter or some of these others, I think that scans because Reddit has been much more thoughtful from the beginning about kind of how do you build a sense of norms that are enforceable around these sub-communities. And that doesn't mean that you don't have the Donald or you know some of these other you know pretty toxic subreddits, but it does mean that at least you know, if you're a person who wants to take on the task of building a community, you have some of the tools that you need in order to do that well. And it doesn't become a kind of free-for-all or, a, you know, only the most high-engaging posts win. That's definitely like a step forward from what you can see in some places on Twitter. Yeah. I started working on the internet in 1996 at Slate, and we had something called The Fray, which was an early, you know, open mm-hmm. discussion board. And, you know, we saw, we had a preview of a lot of this. But <laughs> one of the things that was most apparent was the more knowledge that was required to participate in a discussion, the better that discussion was. Mm-hmm. So something on which everybody had an opinion, i.e., you know, presidential election politics generally, would tend to g- degenerate pretty quickly. But if we had a, th- we did have a, you know, thread about the weekly poem, right? Um, you know, and there was the, the that was that was optimal. I mean, the only people who participated in that were people who liked po- poetry. A lot of them knew something about it. Mm-hmm. It was a great conversation. But similarly, something that involved technical expertise, you'd have a pretty good discussion about because the people who were sort of know-nothings and just wanted to be disruptive didn't really have so much of a way to participate. Right. I think it's important to say 
that good social media both means you know having difficult conversations in a different way, but it also means finding other conversations to have that aren't the incendiary political ones. When you think about all of the civic spaces in a community, there are very few that are like, here's the place where you go when you want to walk up to strangers and tell them what you really think about the most intense political beliefs that you have. That's not a thing for a reason, mostly, which is it's very unpleasant and it doesn't work out well. Instead, we've got basketball courts and tennis courts and community centers and all these other places, which are really about like coexisting across lines of difference, not about like digging into the places of deepest disagreement. And I think figuring out how to you know, build more of those spaces digitally is just as important as solving the problem of like, how do we argue, argue better or more civilly? Yeah, well, it's, you're starting to sound like Marshall McLuhan, which I, you know, very much agree with that there are things about the mode of communication that end up dictating the the tone and even the content yeah. of it. Um, I mean, yeah. I think we'll, we'll look back, I, I do think we'll look back in 10 years or 20 years at this era of the internet and be like, in a sort of amused way, like, it's so crazy and kind of cute that we thought that you could connect, you know, all of human society through like, 180 or 230 character, you know, snippets of text. That's like a really hard <laughs> medium to connect people together. Um, and, you know, when we're all living in whatever weird, um, you know, augmented reality world, <laughs> I think we'll look back at this with some amusement. Yeah. Well, if you're not waiting around for Facebook and the other social media companies to solve this problem on their own, and I don't think either of us are, um, I wonder what you can do to to help solve the problem. How can listeners um, fight polarization in social media and and contribute to more more constructive kinds of interactions? There's two pieces. One is the value for everyone of those people who take kind of ownership of making a space hospitable and welcoming and doing the hard work of mediating between the different people who are there and figuring out who's not there, who should be. Taking on those jobs at a kind of social fabric level really matters. So that's, I think, one one place to go. I think the other places, I'm really excited about this kind of explosion that we're, we're moving into of other models for digital social spaces with parks and with libraries, they're all so mundane and everyday that we can forget that it took these real social movements in moments of great upheaval to set up those kinds of institutions. And I think now is this moment where we need some new kinds of institutions to deal with the upheavals we're facing now. And so I'm just really excited about people joining that. And I think it's a project that you don't have to be you know, a coder to be able to contribute to. That was Eli Pariser. He and Talia Stroud co-direct the Civic Signals Project. We'll include a link to their work in our show notes. We'll also include links to the writers that Eli mentioned so that you can learn more about ways to get involved. Designing and supporting more civically-minded social media is one part of the solution to the divisions we face. Large companies with their proprietary algorithms will continue to impact the health of the metaphorical air and water of our so-called digital cities. Next week, our polarization series continues with a conversation with Cornell professor Nathan Matias. 
He thinks that just as America works to ensure its food safety and air quality, it ought to enforce health standards around algorithms, too. I hope you'll join us for that conversation. Solvable senior producer is Jocelyn Frank. Research and booking by Lisa Dunn. Catherine Girardot is our managing producer, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Solvable is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us. It really helps to get the word out. You can find Pushkin Podcasts wherever you listen, including on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts. I'm Jacob Weisberg. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.